Good morning, and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, and I'm your host every second Monday of the month. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Robin Chutkin, gastroenterologist, and she advocates living a little bit more dirty and eating clean. And these days, we are cleaner, but not necessarily healthier. Amid all the medical advances in the past decades, it seems more and more people are suffering from chronic afflictions such as obesity, food allergies, autoimmune disease, chronic fatigue, depression, diabetes, acne and rosacea, and a slew of digestive troubles from bloating and acid reflux to irritable bowel syndrome, celiac and inflammatory bowel disease. Why and what does our digestive health and the microbiome have to do with it? Well, today we are speaking with one of the most recognizable gastroenterologists working in the United States today, Dr. Robin Chutkin. She's here to speak with us about the microbiome and her book, The Microbiome Solution, A Radical New Way to Heal Your Body from the Inside Out. Dr. Chutkin has a Bachelor's of Science from Yale, an MD from Columbia, and is a faculty member of the Georgetown University Hospital. She's an avid snowboard, marathon runner, and vinyasa yoga practitioner, and she's dedicated to helping her patients live not just longer, but better lives. Dr. Robin Chutkin, welcome to Health Watch. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. Well, I'm so glad to be speaking t- with you about this important topic, the microbiome. So maybe we could just start by letting our listeners know what the microbiome is. The microbiome refers to all the microbes that live in and on our bodies. And when we talk about microbes, we're not just talking about bacteria. We're also including viruses, fungal organisms, little one-celled protozoa organisms, helminths or worms for those of us who have them. And if you scrape them all up, it comes to about 100 trillion microbes in all. So we're talking about a lot of critters here. So we're actually more microbes than person? We are. Our microbial cells outnumber our human cells about 10 to 1. So you could actually make a really good argument that we are more microbe than human. But these microbes have a way of keeping us healthy. Maybe you could talk with us about that a little bit. They do. You know, we've known about microbes since the 1600s when Anthony von Leeuwenhoek a scientist in Europe first looked at his own dental plaque under the microscope and saw what he described as little animalcules <laughs> moving around, and we know those were the first, the first description of microbes. But it's literally taken us that long to figure out that these guys are more friend than foe and that our health and well-being and our very existence, quite frankly, is intricately tied to the health of our microbes. I spent most of my time in medical school, I graduated 25 years ago, learning how to eradicate microbes. So it was sort of shocking for me over the last decade to learn how important they are. And quite frankly, all the diseases you laid out, you drew sort of a beautiful, if not disturbing, picture of what our health looks like these days. And a lot of what we consider these modern plagues, autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, allergies, these were not things that were around 100 years ago. So if you sort of look at uh, this whole concept of super sanitizing our cells, our bodies, our homes, our environment, and widespread public health things like putting chlorine in the water and so on, you can sort of map the rise in our super sanitary lifestyle with the rise in these modern plagues. And obesity is one of them, but we're really finding out fascinating information about the link between the health of our microbiome and the prevalence of obesity. So for people who are obese, um, 
there's a microbiome issue here. Are, are there missing microbes or... There, there likely are, and there's a microbial signature. So we've known for a few years now, there have been some fascinating experiments where people have taken microbes from obese mice and transferred them to germ-free lean mice, and those germ-free lean mice gain weight without any change in diet or exercise. We've seen it in the hospital setting where we're doing FMT, fecal microbiota transplant, otherwise known as a stool transplant, which is nowadays a fairly common procedure for certain types of GI infections, one in particular, Clostridium difficile. And what we've seen with these stool transplants is that if you get donor stool from somebody who is obese, there is a possibility, not always, but the possibility that you could start to gain weight. So we know that there is more to it than calorie in, calorie out when it comes to obesity. And in fact, we know that microbes can change what's called the energy harvest of food, meaning essentially how many calories are extracted and stored as fat. They can do this by slowing down or speeding up the transit time, how long it takes for food to move through the intestines. They can affect the secretion of various hormones that control fat storage. And microbes can even consume calories themselves. So depending on your complement of microbes, you can eat the same amount of calories and, in fact, the exact same food as somebody else, but the amount of calories that you extract from that and store as fat can be different. And, in fact, the same is true of nutrients. So if your microbiome is messed up, you might be eating a very nutrient-dense diet full of really healthy things, but you might not be able to extract, assimilate, absorb all of those nutrients. So, again, this has really, really far-reaching implications for our health. Absolutely. So let's turn that back to children, children who, young children, even toddlers who are obese. What's going on there then in that microbiome uh, at such a young age? Uh, you know, beside the food that they're eating, well, we have to say it is the food they are eating, but do we come into this world with a healthy microbiome or what happens there at birth? We definitely don't all start out equal. So starting with actual birth, and this was fascinating to me when I first learned about this about a decade ago, because I certainly had never heard about this in medical school. Babies that are born vaginally have very different microbiomes from babies that are born via C-section. So that one act of passing through the birth canal is an incredibly important moment. One could argue the most important moment in your life, Ellen, mm. because that's when you become colonized with essentially the founding species for your microbiome. And in an ideal setting, that's your mother's lactobacillus and bifidobacterium and other healthy types of bacteria. And those, again, are the founding species that divide and grow and help to populate your microbiome. Babies that are born via C-section bypass this critical act and instead are colonized with mostly hospital-acquired staff and other, shall we say, less desirable microbes. And what that means is that babies born by C-section also have higher rates of autoimmune diseases, allergies, asthma, and obesity. And then if you add to that babies who receive antibiotics at birth, either because the mother tests positive for group B strep mm. or for some other reason, the mother's treated with antibiotics during the late stages of pregnancy or the baby is treated with antibiotics. And again, during C-sections, women are frequently given, if not always given antibiotics, just preventatively or babies who receive antibiotics early in life. So those things really set you up by creating a lot of imbalance in your microbiome, by causing you to have missing microbes, 
lower species diversity, lower richness of microbes, and those things can follow you all the way into your adult life. It's, it's really quite remarkable. So it's interesting, especially in C-section, you're coming from a sterile world uh, into this world that is trying to be clean for you, but actually is filled with germs. And you, you, it's kind of like you need to be, get dirty to get healthy almost. You need that. to get dirty. And that's why that's exactly what babies and children do. If you ever see you know, toddlers in a playground, they're heading right to the dirt. And it's on their hands, they're putting it in their face and their mouth. There's a reason they're doing that. They have an innate drive to experience their environment because that is how they're colonizing themselves with important microbes. Now, it's helpful if they're not playing right in the pile of dog poo, um, <laughs> but a little bit of dirt can go a long way. And in fact, exposure to different viruses and different bacteria is a really important part of training the immune system so that it knows what to do later on. An immune system that's never up close and personal with enough germs doesn't know what to do later on, and often it starts to react to itself, and that's what an autoimmune disease is. It's when the body starts to destroy its own tissue. It recognizes the gut, in the case of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, as foreign, and it reacts. It causes ulcers and inflammation, or the joints, in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, or the skin, in the case of eczema or psoriasis. So we realize that a lot of those people who have these very overreactive immune systems that are reacting to their body's own healthy tissue it's because their immune system wasn't exposed to enough foreign particles, enough dirt and germs early on, and is, is a little bit trigger-happy. That's, that's putting it mildly, huh? <laughs> and it really is a fascinating concept. It, yeah. it, it stems from this hygiene hypothesis that was something that came about in the early 80s, but it was really from a study that began in the 1950s in post-industrial London when David Strawn, a researcher at the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, was tasked by the government with trying to figure out why they were seeing skyrocketing rates of hay fever and eczema in British children. And again, this was the time in the 1950s when everybody had left the farm for the factory. And he made two startling observations. And the first was that they saw lower rates of hay fever and eczema in families that had a lot of siblings where you were being coughed and sneezed on by your siblings and kids were always sick. That was actually a good thing. They were sort of immunizing you to prevent autoimmune diseases later on. And the other group were more affluent households who at the time in London, this is not the, necessarily the case today, but at the time the more affluent families had higher levels of personal hygiene and that was actually a bad thing. So the kids who were bathing all the time and super clean had much higher rates of hay fever and eczema. And that's something that's still true today. If you look at a map of the world, you see this north-south split and you see in North America and Western Europe and other more developed countries very high rates of autoimmune disease. And in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, the Caribbean, and less developed countries, you see much lower rates. And as countries become more developed, we're seeing this a lot in India and the Middle East, you start to see very high rates of these diseases as the societies transform with more widespread use of antibiotics and coronation and just fewer germs. So there's a lifestyle component being here, this, uh, this sense of hygiene that people are kind of, uh, yes. you know, uh, obsessed with of, of sorts, you know, with hand sanitizers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know how important, you know, cleanliness is for, for certain things. But then there are these, these disruptors that happen. And it, it sounds like, you know, from the antibiotics that we take and a lot of the medications we take, um, uh, you know, anti-acid blockers, uh, NASIDs, um, even birth control pills. You talk about that in your book. 
Um, how are these disrupting the microbiome? Well, it's ironic that we think of the medicine cabinet as where we go to get help, but in my medical practice, the medicine cabinet is the menace cabinet. It is <laughs> a hindrance. It's really what is bringing people into my office. So let's start with hand sanitizers. When we talk about disruptors, triclosan, which is an endocrine disruptor and also bad for the microbiome. And fortunately, the FDA just in September issued a ban on triclosan and personal care products. They said triclosan shouldn't be in soap and shampoo and so on, that there's no advantage to it being there, and there are several disadvantages. So starting next fall, triclosan will be out of personal care products. And that's a good thing because, again, most of these antibacterials are present in very low levels, so not enough to actually prevent a flu, but enough to disrupt our endocrine system. And also when you think about it, most of these things we're trying to prevent, like the flu and a cold, are caused by viruses. They're not caused by bacteria at all. So using mm -hmm. antibacterials doesn't help. You can, you can protect yourself during cold and flu season by washing your hands with a little bit of water and a mild soap and rubbing your hands together and scrubbing them for about as long as it takes to sing happy birthday. That will dislodge viral particles in the hands and can really keep you safe during cold and flu season. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, another one you named as a gastroenterologist. They keep us in business. They make holes <laughs> in the GI tract, big holes that and we we're, think of as ulcers. Right, we're talking about ibuprofen, Advil, those kinds of yes, things. Yes, all of those mm -hmm. things. And they can make little holes and increase the permeability of the gut and really affect the health. Terrible for the microbiome also. Antibiotics are clearly at the top of the list. Five days of a broad-spectrum antibiotic of the kind you might take for sinus infection or urinary tract infection can remove a third of the bacteria in your gut. And there is very little likelihood that those microbes are ever all coming back. When they do, they come back in a very patchy fashion. It can take years, and you're still often missing microbes. So people always want to ask me, well, what probiotics should I take and what can I do? And my answer is always the same. Avoid an antibiotic whenever possible. There's no probiotic out there, or nor is there one ever going to be made that can really fully mitigate the effect of an antibiotic. So it's judicious avoidance of antibiotics whenever possible are sort of golden rule one, two, and three. Birth control pills, hormone replacement therapy, steroids, antacids, and acid-suppressing drugs are another huge one particularly the class of drugs we know as proton pump inhibitors, a little purple pill. We know that these are amongst the most commonly prescribed drugs in the world, and they block stomach acid very effectively, which is why people who have acid reflux feel great when they take them. But unfortunately, stomach acid is one of the body's main defenses against bacteria, unwanted bacteria that can invade the body through the mouth. When you go from an inhospitable acidic environment to keep those bacteria at bay to now an alkali-friendly environment, you get a lot of overgrowth of those bacteria. And a study in one of our GI journals last year, Gut, looking at long-term proton pump inhibitor use, found that it changed 20% of the bacterial taxa in the body. And they found that it was as big a threat as antibiotic use in people taking these drugs long-term. So... These, are, you know, these drugs have become so commonplace, and rather than the true indications for these drugs, which is to use them for a few weeks at a time to heal ulcers, doctors put people on these drugs for decades without having any real idea of what this is doing to gut bacteria. And we're actually creating disease by prescribing and over-prescribing and treating lifestyle problems like too much caffeine and too much late-night eating 
instead of making lifestyle recommendations, putting people on these acid-blocking drugs, and then we're really seeing quite dire consequences down the road. We know that long-term antibiotic use or frequent antibiotic use, for example, in children is a major risk factor for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis to serious forms of autoimmune disease. And it turns out that frequent antibiotic use is also a risk factor for developing celiac disease, Mm -hmm. another autoimmune phenomena with a genetic component. So that's laid out so clearly. There's an interesting thing here where small intestinal bacterial overgrowth syndrome that occurs with people is routinely treated with rifaximin, which is a certain kind of antibiotic. Um, And so can you talk about that a little? Because that's kind of an oxymoron almost. No sense at all, and it keeps me really busy in the office. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is now SIBO or SIBO is not a great name because if you're a layperson or, quite frankly, if you're a physician and you hear that somebody has bacterial overgrowth, it makes perfect sense to think, oh, let me treat that with an antibiotic to get rid of the overgrowth. But it's really bacterial imbalance. There is a whole north-south map for bacteria in our bodies. And as we go from north, from the mouth, south through the esophagus and stomach, small intestine, large intestine, and all the way out through the rectum, the amount of bacteria increased dramatically. So we have a lot of bacteria in the colon and not a lot of bacteria in the stomach. When we use drugs like proton pump inhibitors, again, we block the acid in the stomach, we change the chemical milieu of the upper GI tract, and we now make it more hospitable for bacteria, and so we get more bacteria in the small intestine. But treating it with an antibiotic, even a supposedly selective one like rifaximin, doesn't fix a problem because those antibiotics also remove large amounts of the good bacteria. So you end up with even more imbalance sometimes. I see people have been treated with several courses of these drugs, and often they're feeling even worse. It's really about rebalancing, and we do that by removing offending agents like antibiotics, NSAIDs, hormones, etc., by replacing the bacteria that have been lost with a robust probiotic, and by restoring the health of the gut through dietary changes. And essentially that means eating lots of veggies, lots of fiber-filled veggies. But to think that you can fix that with, you know, seven or ten days of an antibiotic is really magical thinking. Right. So the repair is really, we're talking about a long-term change in how one lives their life and how one eats. Because as you say in your book, the microbes follow the food. They do. They do. So even if you're taking a really fancy prescription strength probiotic, like the one we use in our practice, which is 900 billion colony-forming units, if you are not feeding them the right food, if you're feeding them, you know, potato chips, you are not going to grow a good gut garden. You're not really going to have meaningful recolonization and repopulation. So you really have to change the diet. The microbes definitely follow the food. And there were two foods that were most interesting, and I I think uh, as an acupuncturist, I know I'm always telling people, eat your leafy greens. But the two foods that really seemed to be crucial were leafy greens and fermented foods. Yes, those absolutely are. So leafy greens and anything that's sort of got that stringy fiber, so celery and asparagus and artichokes and actually lentils and and oats are great examples, too, of foods that are high in inulin, which is a kind of fiber that works. It's, it's a prebiotic, essentially. In, in other words, it provides food for the gut bacteria. So foods that are high in inulin are great because they provide this form of fiber that feeds the bacteria and helps them to multiply. 
Mm-hmm. And then fermented foods are the powerhouse combination of both a prebiotic and a probiotic. So they're prebiotic. They're providing fiber, like in the case of sauerkraut. So cabbage is providing lots of fiber for the bacteria. But they're also probiotic because during the fermentation process, they are producing, in the case of sauerkraut, lots of lactobacillus. So you're getting the fiber to feed the bacteria, and you're getting additional live bacteria that you're ingesting when you eat it. And I got some amazing sauerkraut at the farmer's market on Sunday. I have to confess, mine never comes out that good. (laughs) And this one, they were sampling it, and it was so delicious. And I'm looking at the jar of it right here. And, uh, yeah, this is an, an incredible sort of twofer. So fermented foods, leafy green vegetables, you eat lots of those every day, you will be well on your way. So, but are we talking about people who are not quite like a person who has, you know, flaring of ulcerative colitis where you talk about the specific carbohydrate diet, which is a little bit different. Uh, Some people don't even seem to be able to eat uh, regular food. So can you talk about just that difference where someone who might have a really, you know, profound case of ulcerative colitis, meaning that they're functioning, but they have a lot of flares, are trying to heal it through diet. How would, how would you approach that in, in repairing the microbiome as well? well? Ellen, first of all, I'd like to say that even though I'm a huge believer in food as medicine, there are times when prescription medicine is not only necessary, but when it can be a really good idea. And my area of expertise is inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. And as much as my you know, huge passion is treating those diseases just with diet and lifestyle, there are several times in a typical week when I do have to pull up my prescription pad and I do have to prescribe something. And that's because particularly when somebody's having a very active flare, sometimes it's just not possible to reverse that with diet alone. And sometimes we do need to prescribe something to get things onto control. And then when the disease is a little more manageable and the colon is not as inflamed to then really focus on dietary management. So I do want to throw that out and say that, that, you know, if you have really serious disease and it's, you're not able to control it just with food, to not be discouraged, maybe you need to use actual prescription medication and then try again. It doesn't mean that you can't be successful when the burden of disease is not as great. But we use a combination of a diet that has elements of the specific carbohydrate diet elements of a paleo diet and elements of a vegan diet. In the book, I call it the Velio diet, a combination <laughs> of vegan and paleo. But it, I think it's just a fairly common sense way to eat where it removes a lot of the foods that are problematic for the microbiome, so the processed carbohydrates and the refined sugars and the unhealthy fats. And it really promotes the healthy foods, the fruits and vegetables and nuts, seeds, legumes, a little bit of animal protein. There's even a little bit of wine in there. And, um, but really focuses on fermented foods, resistant starches, and foods high in inulin. And I also in the book talk about my one, two, three rule, one vegetable at breakfast, two at lunch, three at dinner. In my own household, it tends to be a three-two-one rule because we usually have a green smoothie in the morning, so we kind of get it over and done with. Uh, but it's so important that you are really eating all these foods. And again, our conventional medical paradigm really 
makes us think that there is just a pill for every ill. And, uh, you know, we have a magic wand and we can just wave this all away. But this is one of these things where if you're struggling with an autoimmune disease, an allergy, your weight, you have a history of having been on a lot of antibiotics in childhood or as an adult, um, it's really meaningful change really takes a little while. But the wonderful thing about the microbiome and the thing I'm so excited about is that it is an incredible message of optimism. Unlike our genes, where, as my 11-year-old says, you get what you get and you don't get upset, <laughs> our microbes are changing all the time. And even more fascinating, our microbes can turn different genes on and off. So our microbes can actually control expression of disease. We see that with something like celiac disease, where one in four people of European ancestry have the genes that can confer celiac disease, but the turning on and off often happens after significant antibiotic exposure and killing off the microbes. So, you know, we just, this idea that we can be the architect of our own health is so exciting. It's so thrilling to me. I mean, my goal is that nobody needs to come and see me in the office and I can just wave to people at the farmer's market as I did <laughs> to a couple patients I saw last Sunday. Um, or say hi to my patients on the yoga map, is the idea that people get it. They understand that even though we can't go all the way back to the cave, we need to really return to a simpler and dirtier way of living, quite frankly. And we need to say no to a lot of these drugs, you know, unless we're really unless we're really suffering. When patients say to me, well, when can I take an antibiotic? I sort of half-jokingly say, well, if death is imminent, you have my blessing, <laughs> but certainly not for a cold or a sinus infection or any of these things. Um, so, you know, I really, my goal is to really provide people with the tools so they can be better advocates for their own health and that they can go to the doctor and say, hmm, do I really need to take that antibiotic? Fascinating data from the pediatric world. We know from one of the pediatric studies that pediatricians prescribe antibiotics 67% of the time when they think the parent expects it and mm. only 7% when they don't. So there's incredible, you know, there's an incredible amount of gray zone where you don't have to take a drug. And so I want people, when they interact with their doctor, to say, well, you know, let's talk about that birth control pill you want me to take, or let's chat about that antibiotic and, and have it be more of a dialogue as opposed to a monologue where these drugs are just being visited on them. So that is just like the perfect world where people can really be engaged in taking back their own health and really changing yeah changing their own state. And I think there's some, it sounds like, as you, as you were talking in the book, there, there are some uh, signs and symptoms that show up along the way before it gets into this really big uh, problem like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or autoimmune, and that's uh, this state of dysbiosis. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, you talk about people have coming in and they just feel bloated, you know, they just think, oh, that's just the way it is. And could you just talk a little bit about dysbiosis? Because that kind of, it's like a little... Uh, a clue, isn't it, for people? It absolutely is, Ellen. So dysbiosis basically just refers to, it's an umbrella term for bacterial imbalance. And so SIBO that we were talking about earlier would be an example of dysbiosis. But the point you make that's so important is that it is, it, it's a, a long trajectory. So if you look at something like inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, we can trace, we have the information now. There was a meta-analysis from Mount Sinai Hospital in New York a couple years ago where Crohn's disease was first described, where they looked at over 7,000 patients and they found that 
frequent use of antibiotics is a major risk factor for these kids developing Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. But there's a continuum, and often you go from normal to not feeling so great, then you get diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, then sometimes it's a little more serious, next thing you know you start having ulceration, and now you have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. So it's really early on, as you said, when you have that bloating, when you have that, you know, change in bowel habits, when you have that fatigue, when you have that feeling of brain fog, and you just, you just feel off. And you think, I mean, I have so many people coming to my office saying, well, maybe I'm just getting old. And I'm like, you're not old. You're 46. <laughs> There's no way you should be feeling like this. You know, your joints shouldn't be hurting. Your hair shouldn't be falling out. You shouldn't be having, you know, weird gas and strange bowel movements. That's not normal. That's your body going knock, knock, knock. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to tell you something. And we have to really listen. And our listening can't be just that, oh, you know, let me just take this probiotic and hope for the best. We have to really, really roll our sleeves up and look at how we're living and see what we can do differently. Well, there's a lot we can do. And Dr. Robin Chetkin, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on Health Watch. And I'd love if you could let our listeners know how they could uh, get in touch with you. I know you have a, a clinic and you also have a great website and you have books and programs. So if you could let our listeners know a little bit about that. Absolutely. Thank you, Ellen. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Chetkin. Our website is gutbliss, G-U-T as in Tom, B as in boy, L-I-S-S dot com. And our clinic is here in Washington, D.C., so come and see me if you're in the area or you're going to be in town. The book is A Microbiome Solution, and uh, Gutless, my first book, is also a really good read, if I can make a plug for it. And, Absolutely. Oh, and I just want to thank you for what you're doing. You know, I think we, we are all in this together. We all have this calling to try and get the information out to people and help people, give people the tools to help them heal themselves. So it's just such a pleasure to be on your show. Oh, well, it's a pleasure speaking with you and just the enthusiasm and passion that you have and and possibility and hope that you bring to people is so, uh, so vital. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Robin Chutkin about her book, The Microbiome Solution, A Radical New Way to Heal Your Body from the Inside Out. And I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, licensed acupuncturist, your host, and tune in next month on Monday, December 12th, when I speak with Dr. Mark Hyman on his new book, Eat Fat, Get Thin. You can listen to this episode and more episodes of Health Watch online at kboo.org slash healthwatch.